0: You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter three tonight. In your Bibles, we're looking at the source of sufficiency. The source of sufficiency. If you want to take notes, there was a pharmacist in a town drugstore who overheard a teenage boy talking on a cell phone while he was waiting in line to pick up a prescri- up a prescription, and. The pharmacist couldn't help but eavesdrop and to overhear the conversation, and the teenage boy was saying, hello, sir, I was calling just to see if you needed anyone to mow your yard and keep it up for you. Oh, oh, you already have someone? Okay, well, is he adequate? Oh, 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 he is. Okay, well, thank you. I was just checking, said the teenager. And the pharmacist, when he got up to the front, to the register, he said to the boy, hey, sorry you didn't get the job, son, and... And the boy looked at him, the teenage boy, and he said, oh, no, sir, I've already got the job. I was just checking up on myself. <laughs> He's checking up on himself. We need to check up on ourselves sometimes. And, and tonight, the Bible is going to do that for us. The Bible is like a mirror. We see ourselves in it. And in the Bible, we see human beings just like us, with weaknesses just like us, who fail just like we do, and it can be such an encouraging thing as we realize that some of these people are now in the hall of fame when it comes to the spiritual things of this life. They're the hall of faith, and and, and so it gives us hope to go, well, if they made it, maybe there's hope for me too. Tonight in our study here in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is continuing his defense, He's going to insist that he is an adequate minister of the new covenant. You see, there were the false teachers there in Corinth that were checking up on Paul, and they were bringing a report against Paul, attacking Paul, seeking to take him down and to uh, take away his leadership uh, ability there or, or his credibility in the congregation at Corinth. And he says in this chapter that he is an adequate minister of the new covenant, but not because of his own strength and not because of his own ingenuity. In fact, he's going to tell us tonight that Paul was able to do all that he did and it didn't have anything to do with him. It didn't have to do with his own gifting, but it was all because of God's work in him. And so again, as with chapter two, Paul is really opening himself up to the Corinthians tonight, and he's sharing his heart with them and with us tonight, and he wants them to know how sincere he is. He wants them to know and to understand that the source for his sufficiency, for his amazing life that he lived is found in the power of the new covenant, the power of the gospel, in other words. So as we study through this passage tonight, I want to pray that you would be encouraged by what we learn. That is, that the source of our own sufficiency as people doesn't come from us, but rather that we, and, and along with Paul, are made competent ministers of the new covenant because of God. And we're going to see that right now. That's, the, that's what Paul is going to be talking about here in chapter 3. So because of these false teachers, he's he's... Uh, uh, he's Basically standing up for himself and he's defending himself as an apostle. And the first reason that Paul offers for his competency as a minister of the new covenant is that he has been commended by the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of those there in Corinth. So look at verses one through three with me tonight. And we read this. Do we begin to attain or do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? For you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And could I get you to advance to the next slide back there for me? not, we're, not advancing for me. Thank you. So first of all, Paul is saying, hey, I'm a competent minister because the Holy Spirit's work in your lives is my letter of commendation. He's mentioning a practice here in verses 1 through 3. Paul is mentioning a practice that was common in those days among the Greeks and the Jews. They would often carry a letter that would permit them to be received with hospitality in their travels, Uh, And Paul is stating a rhetorical question here that expects a negative answer. Paul, the founding father of the church of Corinth, it's absurd to think that he would need a letter of recommendation or a letter of commendation to, to show up in Corinth. It's absolutely absurd. And he's telling them that. He goes on to tell them that, hey, listen, I don't need a letter because you yourselves are the letter of commendation for me. The Corinthian church, in spite of all of its carnality, in spite of all of its problems, was still a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. And I find that to be very encouraging. Even though there was division, even though there was sexual immorality, even though there was selfishness, marital problems, there was false teaching being spread, this church was still God's church. It's still God's work, and there was a genuine work of the Holy Spirit happening at the core of what was happening there, and that was evident because of the changed lives. You see, there were those that even when they knew that they had hurt Paul, when they'd gone against him, hey, they repented and they made things right. They were sorry for what they'd done. We're going to find that out later on in this letter, but their lives were still being transformed and changed, and that should encourage all of us here tonight. Listen, if one of the worst churches in the history of church, they were still called saints in the Bible, they're referred to as saints in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, then guess what? There's some hope for us. <laughs> there's hope for the church today as well. Now, we often look at the church and we think of it in such negative terms, not our church necessarily, but in general. But I'll tell you what, there's problems in this church too. We, we still have these same issues going on. There's, there's sexual immorality. There's division. There's marriage problems. There are selfish people who put themselves before anything and everything else. There's even sometimes way or winds of false doctrine that come through our church. Okay, All of that stuff is present here too. But guess what? We should be hopeful. Because even though there's the, all of that attack of the enemy, guess what? This is a work of God. And God's work cannot be thwarted. God's Holy Spirit cannot be turned back. And so we can be encouraged tonight that God is writing his story in our hearts. He's writing his story in your life. We aren't perfect, but we are God's letter to Paris, Texas. We're God's letter to Bonham or to uh, Blossom or to wherever it is that you came from. We're God's letter to a lost and dying world. And your life spells out the glory of God. Secondly, Paul goes on to say that his competency is from God. His competency is from God. Pick it up with me in verse 4. He says, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Notice with me there in verse 4. He says, he states that he is able to have confidence. That word trust signifies strong confidence. So Paul has a strong confidence in God or toward God through his relationship with Jesus Christ. Church, how many of you have a strong confidence towards God through your relationship with Jesus Christ? Think about that for a moment. In other words, because of Paul's walk with Jesus, his daily relationship with Jesus, he is able to to have a confidence towards God. In other words, he knows that God's God is back because he's walking in Christ, and that is such a powerful thing for us, church, if we can grasp that in our lives, that we can have a confidence towards God. You know, so many Christians, we come before God and we're, we're hesitant with Him. We're not bold before Him because we don't have a, a strong relationship going with Christ. And because of our weakness in our relationship with Christ, because it's so spotty in our relationship, our walk with the Lord, we come before the God of the universe and we're, we're hesitant sometimes. We don't act like we're His kids. Now, you guys that know about kids, you know that kids, when they need something, they just barge right in, right? (laughs) They don't care what's going on. I've got that policy with my kids here at the church, and I've been pleasantly interrupted several times in the midst of counseling appointments, you know, where they just come barging in the door, you know, and <laughs> there's tears flowing and, you know, it's like, what are you doing in here? And I'm like, hey, how's it going? I just want my kids to be able to know that, hey, there's nothing that comes between them in, in, in the ministry. I don't want to put the ministry before them. They know that they can come to me whenever, however they need. So, but they, they do that. And isn't that cool that kids do that? Yet sometimes we don't do that with our heavenly father. We forget to have Boldness or trust, confidence towards God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. He goes on to say there that he and the other ministers of the gospel in verses 4 and 5 and 6. He says, hey, we are not sufficient or adequate because of anything that we have to offer. Note that humility there. Paul's got this humility about himself. It's not because of me. He's saying it's simply because of God. God who is working in and through our lives. That is humility. You know, our flesh loves to claim credit, doesn't it? Our, our, our flesh loves to get in there and steal a snippet of the glory. We love to step in and to say, well, I did this or I did that or, or I'm so important they couldn't have done this without me or the church really is dependent upon me to, to move forward and, and things like that. That's really sometimes the attitude that we have. We might not voice it that way, but we all struggle with that internally. I think that that motive or that that fault or that selfishness that wants to be more important sometimes than we really are. But Paul here is expressing a beautiful humility of heart. He says, "Hey, we're not adequate in and of ourselves for the ministry that we've been given. In fact, if it was up to me, it would all crumb, it would all crumble and fall." I, I, I chuckle there because. We often find ourselves saying that in our staff meetings on Monday mornings here at the church. Our staff meets for two hours on Monday mornings. We block that out. That's my time to pour into them, to disciple them, and to hear from them and talk, and we fellowship. But you know what? It's an awesome time because none of us really knows what we're doing, and that'll come out sometimes you know, I love the conversations when I really don't know how we're going to get this done. We really don't know what we're doing. We better just be praying harder, you know, because if God doesn't show up, we're toast. We're, we're through, you know, but that's kind of Paul's heart here. He, he, not that he was disorganized or that he was, you know, a loser or something like that. But, but, but he's just saying, look, we know that anything good that's happening, it's happening because of God's grace. It's happening because of God's power through our lives. Paul's adequacy for the task of preaching the gospel and sharing the good news was not found in his own intellectual power. It was was not in his amazing knowledge base. Okay, Paul didn't get these things done because he had graduated from Rabbi Gamaliel's school. It was simply the work of God in Paul's life. And I love this. You see, there's so many times that we make excuses for why we aren't qualified. Oh, I'm not really qualified to do that. Or man, that's not really something I should be doing. And and we, we think that we're not qualified, especially to serve the Lord by sharing our faith. So many Christians do not share their faith. Why? Because we think, oh, I haven't been trained for that. Or I'm not qualified for that. But we think that we have to somehow you know, get qualified or find a skill set or learn something to be a minister of the good news of Jesus Christ. But according to the most qualified missionary, according to the, 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 one of the best gospel preachers in the world, in the history of Christianity, according to one of the best church planners and all around godly guy, he says he wasn't adequate in and of himself to do anything related to spiritual ministry. That's incredible when you think about it. According to him, it was his relationship with God. That was his qualification. His qualification came from God and not from men. It was God that enabled Paul to do what he did, to go where he went, to suffer what he suffered, and to preach the good news. Speaking of preaching the good news, has anybody read about the young man from America, John Chow, who was killed? Recently, this last week, while he was trying to spread the gospel to the Sentinelese on a, on a small island there off the coast of India. Anybody heard of that? Yeah, he was, he was uh, believe well, I believe he was killed. I just saw a headline today that said, maybe he's not dead. I don't know uh, what's going on there. If that's the case, we need to pray for him. But, but this young man, I believe he had the right motive. He saw these people as being people who their greatest need was the gospel of Jesus Christ, and uh, unfortunately today that is not a very prevalent cultural trend, especially e- even in the church in the West, it's dying out. This this heart of missions, but but he had the right motive. He may have had the wrong method. I, in fact, I think his method was was probably not the the best method. He didn't. He was not backed by a missions organization. And I believe Jesus sends us out in two or three you know groups, but. Uh, Man, I pray that his efforts are not wasted, not lost. But but he had the right motivation in that he's a hero in my eyes. Because he saw a people that needed to hear the good news. And he wasn't afraid of what culture was going to say about him. He was even willing to break the law to get the good news to these people. Now, I'm not condoning that we break laws and things like that. I think there's a, a right method to go about it, as I said before. But Paul had that same kind of a heart to preach the good news, to go and to preach to the people that needed it. This is something that is so deep and yet simply wonderful at the same time, or wonderfully simple, excuse me. It's deep, it's profound, yet it's so simple. Why is it simple? Because any one of us can do this. Because the competency isn't in you. (laughs) you you don't have to have a degree. You don't have to be a, have a doctorate in evangelism. All you have to have is a testimony. All you have to have is be able to say, hey, Jesus saved me. And if you can say, Jesus saved me, you can share that faith with others around you. And man, there is nothing more important in this world than a soul, a life that is saved for Christ. So what about you here tonight? Maybe you're listening online. want to ask this are you living your life realizing that your sufficiency is not of yourself but it is of God or are you making it through life trying to depend on your own strength trying to do it your own way hey you could do that you can limp along like that for a while lots of people do it but sooner or later life is going to take you to the end of yourself isn't it it always does we live in a fallen world, and because of sin, there's always things that are going on, and happening, and you'll run out of of you'll run out of love at some point. You'll run out of peace. You'll run out of the fruit of the spirit at some point, and you're going to have to come to the Lord, crawling on your knees, and going, "Lord, I'm not adequate for these things. The competency is not in me. It's in You, Lord." And when we realize that, guess what? It takes the weight off of our shoulders. It takes away the pressure to perform. And it frees us up instead to rest in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And we can say, Jesus, I'm resting on your grace. My life is, I'm going through hell on earth right now. But I'm trusting and I'm resting in your grace today to get me through. Because I'm not adequate for these things. We come now to the final major portion of chapter 3. The contrast of old versus new. And that's verses 6 through 18. So let us he really begins the co- contrast there in verse 6. So I want to pick it up there and we'll read it through the end of the chapter. I know we already read verse 6, but let's go ahead and read it again. It says, Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I want to pause right here for a moment. Paul is, as I said, contrasting now the, the law the old covenant, uh, over and against the new covenant, or or with the new covenant, I should say. Paul is referencing the letter of the law of Moses there in verse 6. and he's And he's going to contrast that with the Spirit, which is the source of spiritual life. Now, the law of Moses can never, it couldn't ever, and it still can't ever justify anyone before God. Because if a person fails to obey even one of the commands of the law, Then they become guilty before God of failing to keep the whole law, according to James 2.10. So actually, let me, I should say this. The law could justify you if you kept the law perfectly for your entire life. Problem is, there's only one man who's ever done that. That's Jesus Christ, right? And he did that. So he could be a substitute for all of humanity on the cross. Because he's the only one who fulfilled the law in its entirety. So the law only condemns. It only leads to death, not to life. On the other hand, the new covenant is characterized by security that we have, or that the Holy Spirit brings to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. Not by themselves, not by keeping the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's keep going in verse 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, Because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. What does Paul mean here? What is he talking about? Is he saying that the law is no longer valid? Is he saying that the the, the law is no longer of value here? No, not at all. It's important to recognize that Paul does not imply here that the law itself is fading away but that it's the ministry of the law that was fading away, okay? There's a difference. The law is holy, and it always will be the expression of the will of God for human conduct. It's always going to be valid, okay? The law is always valid. However, the time of the ministry of the law has come to an end. Why? Because we know that the ministry of the law can't save us. And Romans 8 tells us that's why Jesus came. Because what the law couldn't do because of the weakness of our flesh, Jesus Christ stepped in and did for us. Amen. He saved us. He saved us from the condemnation of the law because he lived and fulfilled every letter of the law. Notice here that it is the new covenant that is described as being permanent, though. And because of this, it is now superior to that which was fading away. The ministry of the law. The covenant of the law has been superseded now by the covenant that is based on Christ's death and resurrection, okay? Verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, I want to stop right here. What hope is he talking about? The hope that the new covenant brings. The hope that we can be justified by faith. That we can be saved by God's grace. The hope that we will not be condemned because of the law. Instead, we're gloriously saved through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of that hope, look at what that brings in verse 12. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. The good news gives boldness to those who believe it. The good news gives us boldness to preach the gospel church, to share the good news with the world around us the good news of Jesus Christ should fill us with an excitement that, wow, I'm no longer condemned by the law. I'm no longer separated from God and my sin and on the path to hell. But God has transferred me to the kingdom of light. And now by his grace, I'm going to proclaim the good news. I'm not adequate to do it. I'm not competent to do it in and of myself, but it doesn't matter because God is. And God working through my life is going to do powerful, life changing things. Amen? Verse 13, continuing on, this boldness is contrasted against what Moses had. Moses wasn't bold like that. It says that unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So he's referring here back to Exodus chapter 34. And and what he's referring to is the, is the thing that Moses would do. Moses, when he went into the presence of the Lord and he met with the Lord face to face, he would take his veil off. And so he would be face to face with the Lord. But after he was done meeting with the Lord, he would put that veil back on when he went out to minister to Israel. Because he didn't want them to see that this glory, that, that, that the glory of his countenance was fate, would fade. That it wouldn't say, stay as strong as it always had. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded, until, for until this, this day the same veil remains, unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Let's pause right there for a moment. This explains why many Jews have not received Christ because they as they're studying the scriptures and looking in the old testament they're not removing the veil and coming face to face with Christ it's Jesus Christ that opens the eyes and gives understanding and and makes scripture make sense but because they've got that veil so to speak just as Moses in the presence of the Lord he removed the veil face to face but when he went to minister he put that veil back up and it was there was no There was no clearness there. In the same way, that's what's going on in the mind of the Jew who is looking to the Old Testament and and not seeing Christ in Scripture. So even to this day, when Moses is read, they veil lies on their heart, Paul is saying. He goes on in verse 17, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I want to point out real quickly here, when Paul says that the Lord is the spirit in verse 17, That is not a one-to-one identification, okay? That would create a problem in the doctrine of the Trinity if it was a one-to-one identification. What he's saying here is that when a person turns to Christ and believes in Him, that the Lord is to us as the Spirit, okay? Just as Jesus Christ is Lord, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is also Lord to us, to the believer. So this is a strong affirmation actually here of the deity of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives us the strength and the power to overcome strongholds of sin and sets us free from the condemnation of the law. Praise Jesus for that. He goes on in verse 18 to close out the chapter. He says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as By the Spirit of the Lord. So, before I explain that verse real quickly, I want to show you guys a chart that I've got on the slides. And this chart is really uh, something that helps us to see the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so, if you could just look at this with me, from what we've seen in chapter 3 tonight, Paul has beautifully shown us the difference between the old and the new covenants. The old covenant of the law is written on tablets of stone, he said. And in in exchange, the, the new covenant is written in human hearts. So stone tablets are exchanged for your heart, my heart, the flesh, the softness of our hearts. And that's why we feel That's why we can sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why our conscience is pricked. That's why uh, we can suddenly, when we become alive to God, when we're born again, all of these things begin to really make an impact in our hearts because we're alive to them, because he's written them in our hearts. There's also the ministry of death, In the Old Covenant, in other words, it leads to death, whereas the New Covenant leads to life. It's the ministry of the Spirit. It's also known as the ministry of commendation, or the Old Covenant is known as the ministry of condemnation, whereas the New is the ministry of righteousness. The Old Covenant, there was a veil. There was this covered up thing because of fear. In the New Testament, there's boldness because of hope. I love it in the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was fulfilled By Christ's life. The new covenant is given through Christ's death and resurrection. The glory of the law or the ministry of the law is fading away. But the glory of the new covenant goes from glory to glory. In other words, it's never ending. That's what Paul means by that. The glory of the new covenant. It's it's never ending glory, guys. (laughs) This new covenant is never going to be superseded. (laughs) So the hope is endless, guys. And the hope is real. It's better than anything the world has to offer to us. Um, The the amazing new covenant covenant is comprised of at least three core elements that Paul uh, recognizes here in this chapter. The first is the cornerstone. The cornerstone of the new covenant is Christ Jesus himself. So it's made in his blood, this new covenant. It's sealed through his suffering. And death on behalf of the world. So so get this, guys. There's a covenant. A covenant is a pact. It's a contract, so to speak. And God has unilaterally stipulated the terms of the covenant. He says, you know what? I'm offering salvation to the entire world through my son, Jesus Christ. It's yours for the taking. This unilateral uh, uh, conditional covenant meaning that God stipulated all the terms for salvation and completed the work of salvation on the cross. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. But secondly, it has as its capstone freedom to the person who is in Christ, the person that trusts in Jesus and, and the good news of God's grace, the good news of God's forgiveness, his justification, his righteousness that is given to the one who believes. All of that, the prize Of that is freedom. Freedom from the power and the penalty of sin. I love that. The new covenant brings freedom. I am so thankful for that in my life. The freedom to to, to say, you know what, sin? You had a hold on me. You used to control me. I used to have to do what you wanted. But now you don't own me anymore. Uh, When we were here, it was uh, for the, the the concert. A couple weeks back, there's a band called Disciple, and they had a song called Dear X, You Don't Own Me. And, and it's all about that relationship, that former relationship to sin and, and the world and the flesh and, and those things of the world that can so get a hold on us and cut us off and, and get us chained up. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ obliterates those chains, blows them away. And we have this freedom to say no to sin and yes to Jesus and to embark on a transformation, a process of transformation. And that's the third part of the new covenant. The milestone, if the cornerstone is Christ and the capstone is freedom, the milestone of the new covenant, in other words, here's how you know that you're on that road. You're being transformed. You're going through a process of transformation. Your life should not look the same year after year after year, Christian. You should be embarked upon this process of sanctification in which on a daily basis you're drawing near to the Lord and saying, God, the competency is not of me. I don't have what it takes. I am not adequate to be transformed. I need you to do this work in my life. And so if you can look back on your life two years ago or five years ago or ten years ago and you haven't changed... You need to get back on the path of, of salvation. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus is the door. You need to enter through that door. What is he the door to? He's, he's the doorway to the path of grace, the path of salvation. And, and there are Christians, I believe, that need to come back to Jesus Christ as the door, and they need to say, you know what? I am not changing. I am not going through transformational change in my life. I'm the same guy I was two years ago. I'm the same guy I was five years ago. I've got the same issues in my life as I had 10 years ago when I was saved. Hey, listen, that's a problem. The milestone of the new covenant, according to the Apostle Paul, is that we are transformed into the image of Christ over time. It's not going to happen overnight. I hate to burst your bubble. I have people come into my office sometimes and they're like, All right, here's the deal. Here's what's going on. This is a, a bomb and now fix it. Or I want God to fix it right now. And a lot of times I have to tell that person, Hey, you know what? This is not going to go away in three weeks. It's not going to go away in a month. It's not going to go away in two months or three months. You're going to have to buckle down and make your faith real. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you either go, You know what? It's all of this stuff or it's Jesus. And you got to make that choice. And then you got to start tearing all that other stuff out. And it takes time. But milestones of transformation should mark our lives. We should be able to look back and say, Lord, thank you. I see your grace. I see how you've worked in my life. I see how you've stirred up my heart. And you've made me feel for, for these things. And you've made me uh, you know, a different man or a different woman. And, and, and it's all by your grace, Lord. All of us, the milestones of transformation, they continue over the course of our lifetimes, guys. It's a lifetime thing. Sometimes one of the toughest times in life is at the end. When you draw to, near to the end of your life, believe that the enemies. Attacking and, 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 and trying to, you know, just mess with people at the end of their lives. But oftentimes, it's those milestones of transformation that make all the difference at the end as well. When a person can look back and say, God, you've been with me. You've been faithful. And Lord, here I am on the brink. About to step into eternity. And Lord, we, we, we can have peace in that moment. We can have the peace of the Lord in that time because we know that we belong to Him, that He holds our life in His hands. So, what's the conclusion of the whole matter? The conclusion is that Christ changes everything, Jesus Christ is our sufficiency. He's our competency. He's our adequacy for the ministry of the new covenant. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit producing his life in us that we're set free and transformed, church. As we see Jesus at work in our lives, guess what? He transforms us into his image. He makes us competent ministers of his grace. And it's all by his grace. It's an amazing thing to think that God would partner with us to think that God loves us so much. We can't surprise him with our sinfulness, guys. We don't surprise God with our failures and mistakes, our errors. He looks at us and he loves us because Jesus Christ died for those things. And Jesus Christ is our advocate. He's on our side. He's there pleading our case before the Father and saying, yeah, yeah, he did that, but I erased that on the cross, Lord. And so when the Father looks and he sees us, he sees us in Christ. And it's by his grace, it's by his power, it's by his spirit. All for his glory. Amen. Let's pray.